Thank you, Marcus, and good morning, everybody, and good morning to those of you who are at home. Um, I wanted to remind you that we're doing Christmas Eve a little bit differently uh, this year. We're going to have three services <clears throat> at 3, 4, 30, and 6 with the, the hope that we will spread out a little bit. So that's why we're doing three services this year. Hope you can make it to one of those. <clears throat> uh, there's a musical version of a book called Le Miserable. Has anybody either read the book or seen the movie? Okay, yeah. It's uh, one I won't forget. My mom and my wife and I went and saw this movie on Christmas Day. There was about 10 to 15 minutes when someone wasn't crying during this movie. It's pretty heavy if you haven't seen it or if you're <clears throat> not familiar with the book. It's about characters going through some some really tough stuff. There's one character in particular named Fantine. And <clears throat> she sings this very sorrowful song. And the song, and I can hear someone humming it now. Uh, the song is called I Dreamed a Dream. It begins with the words, I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hopes were high and life worth living. Then she goes on to describe her youthful vigor. She had this very fun, happy life as a young lady. She met a guy a little bit older than her. She fell in love. They had a great summer together. But then she ended up with an unexpected pregnancy. Then the father of the child departed. And her dreams came crashing down. And as a single mom living in France in the 1800s, it was going to be very difficult for her to even survive. She worked in a factory for a while, but then she was fired because the foreman found out about her child. She ended up selling her hair and her fillings and her teeth to pay for her rent. And finally, when she had nothing else to sell, she ended up selling herself. She became a prostitute and became this hollow shell of the woman that she once was. Eventually, she dies from her sickness that she contracted as a prostitute. Then the song ends with the words, I had, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream that I dreamed. For many people, this has been their experience, and I'm looking across a room of people that I'm sure can in some way identify with that. Things have not ended up perhaps the way you had thought or you had hoped. It could come in so many ways. In his book, The Road Less Traveled, Scott Peck, he said, life is hard. All of life's music is not in perfect harmony. What starts out to be a symphony becomes a cacophony. And discordant notes often dominate the score. And with Fantine, many of us could sing, Life has killed the dream I dreamed. Maybe 2020 has killed the life that you dreamed. Whether it be loss of job, loss of a loved one, loss of an election, you can identify with that sense of loss. If you've not experienced a moment of disappointment in your life, well, just hang on. Because you're going to. At some point, life is going to leave you with a sense of despair. Maybe it'll be because of a, a wrecked relationship. 
with an adult child. Loss of health. Maybe you're worried about facing the holidays this year. There are so many people who wish the calendar ended the day before Thanksgiving and picked up again on December 26th. Some of these things leave us with a feeling of despair or hopelessness. And what we need is a hope that we can count on. What we need is a hope that isn't dependent on circumstances that are just crashing around us from time to time. So the topic I want to talk about this morning is how can I have a God-sized hope? How can I have a God-sized hope that will persevere, that will continue on? We're going to take a break from our first Samuel series this morning, as you can tell from the lights, the candles, and the trees. It's, it's Christmas time, and we're going to start steps towards Christmas, going back into the Old Testament. And we're going to start this morning with Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. If you would please stand with me as we read Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days. And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. You may be seated. So again, it's Christmas time. And this season, I want to go back into the Old Testament and take a look at God's people who were expecting a king to come. It was dire times back then. And they were looking forward to these promises that God had given them. And it's been an interesting year, to say the least. And it's my prayer that our church will be united and hopeful as we go into 2021 together. So we're looking back in the Old Testament to predictions concerning Christ's coming and the better days that would accompany him. And this morning, I want to, again, look for a deep, sustaining hope, one that is God-sized. So this morning, we're going to look at the passage this way. First, we'll look at hope in God's promise, then hope in God's person. Then we'll see that hope allows risks. Then finally, we'll answer the question, well, how does hope change us? Two ways that this God-sized hope can actually change us in how we live day to day. First of all, let's talk about this promise of hope. Let me give you some context for this passage uh, that we're going into. You see, we're talking about a prophet named Jeremiah. He was called at times the weeping prophet. If you read the book of Jeremiah and you see what kind of pain this man had to endure as he was bringing very somber messages to the king of Israel, you'll see why he was called the weeping prophet. And around the year uh, 627 B.C., God had chosen Jeremiah to be a mouthpiece for himself. Now, he would have been about a junior in high school when God came to him and said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was coming into a time when he would be God's mouthpiece to people who were disobedient. 
Then fast forward 40 years, and Jeremiah, he's still a spiritual leader for his community, but the nation is in a total crisis. The year is now 587 B.C. The king of Babylon and his troops have completely encircled the city in, in which Jeremiah lived. The kingdom at this time was split. The northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom of Judah was being hammered on by these Babylonians. They were under siege. They were on the brink of starvation. Zedekiah was the king. And he's still under this delusion that he can beat this king in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. So he keeps fighting back. And meanwhile, Jeremiah is telling the king, look, it's over. You need to give up. But then Zedekiah has got these false prophets that are talking to him, one especially by the name of Hananiah, who's saying, look, I had a different vision. Don't listen to that prophet Jeremiah. God is on our side. We can still beat this king. And by the way, Zedekiah is going to choose to do things the hard way. So hopeful, poor hopeful king Zedekiah is not going to listen to God. He's not going to listen to God's prophet Jeremiah. He's going to listen to these false prophets. Now God has made his intentions clear. He's going to destroy this city. But he's not going to leave it in a state of broken destruction. We get to our verses from today. Jeremiah 33, 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You see, God in his grace is not going to leave the city in a permanent state of destruction. And after a long call for repentance, if you go through the pages of Jeremiah... And God again and again is saying, repent, repent, repent. He told Zedekiah, if you just give in to this Babylonian king that I intend to come and take this city, you and your family are going to live. But he chose not to do that. He's going to do it his own way. But after God brings this destruction down, like a parent who's corrected a child, there's going to be a coming delight. And he expects them to place their hope in this truth. Now, maybe the city isn't surrounded right now. But see, we also need this kind of abiding hope. And this is going to come with the birth of Jesus Christ. Many promises in the New Testament are written so that we can cling to them. We can claim them. Because we live in tension as Christians. See, we have this hope that came with our faith in God that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. He's always going to be there no matter how dark things may seem. However, we're still stuck in this fallen world that we're in right now. And all the pain and all the sin. And even though we have the Holy Spirit residing in us at the same time, through all this difficulty, we do not stop pursuing God himself. As a matter of fact, there's a there's a phrase by Tozer. Uh, it's come from a book called Men Who Met God. And in that book, he states, what I'm anxious to see in God, what, rather, what I'm anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I want to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing him. 
I want to see him in the great joy of having God, yet always wanting him. See, this is the hope of the believer. As we trudge along this sometimes difficult path, the abiding hope that we have is that every day we are continually walking towards a God who is continuously revealing more about himself to us. That's why the Christian, no matter the circumstances, is never without hope. He gives us rest. He gives us rest today. Are we still waiting on God's final rest? Yes. We have it already, and we have it not yet. So we have a restless hope in God's promise. He's making us into better, more Christ-like persons as we continue to seek his everlasting kingdom. And we also have hope in God's person. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. It says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. So we've got this righteous branch who's going to spring from David, and he sounds great, doesn't he? I mean, he sounds like, Everything we would want in a, in a person, executing justice and righteousness in the land, saving people. Who is he? Well, when's he going to be here? Because, see, this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. He's going to come in the line of David, hence the phrase, to spring up for David, springing out of the line of David And then through his ministry, according to verse 16, Judah will be saved. That is that southern kingdom. Jerusalem is going to dwell securely. That's a city within Judah. It's all under siege right now. And the whole city is going to be called the Lord is our righteousness. Isn't that kind of a weird name for a city? The Lord is our righteousness. But see, it's called that because the city itself is going to take on the attributes of the king. That's why it's called the Lord is our righteousness. This is a vision for a kingdom to come. This is to be where our hope is stored up. This is a hope that can't take anything that can never be taken from us. Not even death itself can take away our hope as Christians. God has taken care of the end. It's like this story I'd heard about a bird. Uh, it was in the middle of a storm, and this little bird was clinging to a branch and seemed to be staring into the storm, unafraid of what it may bring. It was as though the bird was confidently saying, shake me off, I still have wings, I'll live anyway. Do you know that because of Christ's birth and his death and his resurrection, every Christian can look the experience of death in the face and say, shake me off, I still have wings, and I'm going to live anyway. So what does that kind of hope enable us to do? Hoping in the person of Christ, what he's done. This is a hope that allows risks. This is a hope that allows risks. So we can take risks, and and Jeremiah demonstrates his faith in God. Back in chapter 32... In verses 6 through 9, we see that he actually, while he's in a prison, 
he buys a field. Now you got to think about that for a second, because everything is under siege. And yet Jeremiah, he, he buys a field in verses 6 through 9, already under control of Babylonians. Now why in the world would he do that? While he's in jail, he does the purchase through some other people. And he gets the papers and the deeds. And then God gives him instruction. We see it in verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. Now, this is interesting. This is a field that's going to be there whenever everything that goes south happens. The, the deed in the field will still be there. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So Jeremiah doesn't fully get this. And he spends silver, 17 shekels of silver, to get this land. Then he kind of questions God on this. And then how does God respond? Look at verses 26 and 27. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jeremiah, don't worry about it. I'm going to restore the land back. That field will be there for when people come back. The exile that you're going to experience isn't going to last forever. There's hope at the end of it. So take this risk. Trust what I'm telling you to do. Buy the field. This was a God-ordained risk. And it was because of the hope of what was to come that this risk was worth taking. See, our future hope encourages us to take some risks. And the truth is, you take risks every day. It's not like you shield yourself from risk by not doing certain things. By virtue of living in this world, you are taking a risk. Getting out of bed is risky. Getting in your car is risky. Sharing the gospel is risky. By the way, I was so thrilled to see so many people that were willing to come and uh, hand out cider on a busy street this past Friday for the Christmas stroll. You don't know what people are going to say to you when you're representing a church. There's a statement by John Piper talking about this risk. He said, Christ calls us to take risks for kingdom purposes. Almost every message of American consumerism says the opposite. Maximize comfort and security now, not in heaven. Christ does not join that chorus. To every timid saint wavering on the edge of some dangerous gospel venture, he says, fear not, you can only be killed. Now, that wouldn't make sense if you did not have eternity waiting on you. But because death is that doorway we pass through to get home, this makes perfect sense. Most of us probably are not going to be called to lose our lives for our faith. Comfort, maybe. Probably not death, but even so, these are risks worth taking. So then how does this hope change us? I want to suggest two ways this hope changes us. First of all, it makes me long for the right things. It makes us long for the right things. You know, we live in a world full of infinite distractions and, and false promises. If you pay attention to commercials, advertisers, they know what your deepest desires are. And hope, by the way, if I was going to give you a two-second definition, it's very simply desire plus expectation. Hope is something that you desire, that you want, 
that you expect that you're going to get. Now, advertisers know what your deep, deep hopes are, and they're there, they're real. And that's why when they're selling you something, when they're just, for example, selling you whatever it is, uh, if it's a beer commercial, this is some of the prettiest commercials with the Clydesdales, and, and then the carriage full of people going to a big party at a bonfire. I mean, who wouldn't want to be there? See, they know you want community. And if they sell you the right clothes and the right this, that's what's going to be the key to you having your deeper heart's desire. They know this. But they can't deliver on that. They're trying to sell you with every Hallmark movie an unrealistic picture of the holidays. We're made to be in community, but what is it that binds us together? It's the promises of God that bind us together. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that bind us together. Because we've got these deep, heartfelt longings and desires, and we want them to be filled. You know, for years, we met at my Aunt Joe's house on Christmas Eve. Some of my favorite memories are at Aunt Joe's house with my aunts and uncles and cousins on Christmas Eve. Then a few years ago, Aunt Joe passed away. For a few years, we had Christmas Eve at my parents' house. Well, my parents just sold that house. One by one, event by event, place by place, things start disappearing, and at some point, every person around your table during the holidays is going to be gone. It's just going to happen. Enjoy it. All of us should enjoy it while we can, but our ultimate hope is to be seated around that table that's going to happen in eternity. When you're reunited with the people that you love, the people in Christ who have gone on before you. See, that's the table that never ends. Everything else is just an introduction, as good as it can be. Enjoy it while we can. You know, we call the student ministries here, it's called SYMOTA, S-Y-M-O-T-A. It stands for set your mind on things above. That's where our hearts need to be. And I hope that through this holiday season, uh, you'll find comfort. And I want to speak just very practically for a moment. If you have lost someone, uh, and this is maybe the first year uh, that you've, you're going without that person, um, it may mean that you need to adjust your expectations for what this holiday is going to be. It may mean that there's some decorations that you don't put out this year. If it's just going to kind of wreck you uh, emotionally, maybe it's not the right time to do that. And also, I need to mention, make sure you don't try to anesthetize the pain um, with alcohol and illegal drugs. Don't do that. That's going to leave you feeling off. It's going to leave you feeling worse off than you are right now. But because we hope in what Christ has brought, it changes our heart's desires. And as we watch what we love pass on, we have to place our hope on someone else. Then a second change that hope brings to our lives, it helps us endure our present suffering. It helps us in enduring our present suffering. And I've already mentioned some of the suffering that comes with life. Obviously, death is particularly hard. Um, and our hope helps us to endure this. So what is suffering in your life? And how are you suffering right now? And do you realize that Christmas signals the end of that suffering? There's a, 
a man named Paul Tripp. He's a Christian author and speaker. And he actually refers to Christmas as the sufferer's holiday. And he, he wrote on this subject, and he says, If there weren't pain, suffering, sin, destruction, discouragement, and death, there would be no need for Christmas. This holiday is about suffering. This holiday is about pain. Now, what we've done, and it's right to do that, is that we've made a holiday of celebration because we're celebrating the coming of the Messiah. But then he goes on to say this. But in doing so, but in so doing, we forget why he came. He came to end suffering. He came to end death. He came to end sin, end brokenness, end pain and destruction and discouragement. And so this is the sufferer's holiday. Rather than the holiday to be avoided, I ought to run toward Christmas. Because what Christmas tells me is there's hope for people like me. Christmas guarantees that God has, will, and will continue to address what I'm going through. You know, I, I love Christmas. I love seeing my little boy uh, open those gifts. I love seeing him light up. I like the, the trappings around it. But at the same time, I'll be honest, there's a little bit of loss each year. We have a God-sized hope that can change us. It's a hope that we can cling to when we find ourselves heartbroken through the holidays. I want to sum this sermon up to say, cling to God-sized hope found in God's promises in person. Cling to God-sized hope found in God's promises in person. And uh, I want to close, and I, I want to provide a fuller picture of the hope of the Christian. And again, I believe hope is desire plus expectation, but we're so easily sort of deluded and confused by the distractions and the false promises out there. Uh, Mark Buchanan wrote a book called Things Unseen, Living with Eternity in Your Heart. And he's pointing out how we all continually live for the next thing. The next item on our checklist of luxuries, the next job, the next adventure, the next relationship. And he notes that this becomes so obsessive that we lose the capacity to enjoy and to be thankful for what we have right now. And he said, this is never more apparent than at Christmas time. He writes, he said, I saw this close up when my children first got to that age when the essence of Christ Christmas becomes the day of getting. There were mounds of gifts beneath our tree, and our son led the way in that favorite childhood and more subtly adult game. How many are for me? But the telling moment came Christmas morning when the gifts were handed out. The children ripped through them, shredding and scattering the wrappings like jungle plants before a well-wielded machete. Each gift was beautiful. An intricately laced dress Grandma Christie had sewn, an exquisitely detailed model car Uncle Bob found at a specialty store in Vancouver, a finely bound and gorgeously illustrated collection of children's classics Aunt Leslie had sent. The children looked at each gift briefly, their interest quickly fading, and then put it aside to go on to the next thing. When the ransacking was finished, my son, standing amid a tumultuous sea of boxes and bright crumpled paper and exotic trappings, asked plaintively, is this all there is? 
Using this all too familiar Christian scene, this shows how we're taught not to value things too much, but to value them too little. We forget to treasure and to savor the pressure of constant wanting dissipates all of our gratitude. The weight of restless craving plunders all enjoyment. But then he adds this surprising thought. One that points to a dip, deeper reason for our Christmas greeting. He says this, God made us this way. He made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find, to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that no thing can fill, and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. Yearning itself is healthy, a kind of compass inside us pointing to true north. It's not the wanting that corrupts us. What corrupts us is the wanting that's misplaced and set on the wrong thing. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would set our hopes on what you have given us, on the birth of your Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this gives us a daily hope. This gives us daily rest. This gives us a hope that can't be taken away by any event, no matter how tragic it may be, that's going to transpire in our lives. As hard as it is, God, help us to set our hearts on the hopes that you have given us an abiding hope, an eternal hope, a hope that will never disappoint. Discipline our hearts and our minds, God, not to lay our hopes on uh, the, the invitation to the right party or the right relationship, God. They, these things can't hold the weight of our hope. But Lord, in your person, in your promise, so that your peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.